I got a I got a good introduction out at uh, Stacy's church. I, I don't know about here, but uh, that's faith out there, community, one of those things. Uh, be turning to uh, Revelation chapter one, and uh, I want to uh, be I want to talk to you a little bit first before we read some scripture. We're going to be dealing with the third uh, of uh, third and last message uh, pertaining to the rapture, and I can tie a number of things together through uh, going to the book of Revelation. Now, the first thing I want to say is that uh, I believe there's a, I have this commentary on Revelation out there called the Time of the End. Just a couple of copies I sent over, so uh, don't take one if you. Uh, look at it and can uh, drum up if it uh, drums up an interest uh, within your being and you want a copy it's a, uh, just uh, send me an email uh, I would give my phone number I won't do that you can get my email address easily enough uh, send me a postcard uh, if you send me a, an envelope don't put anything in it I'm not interested the books are free I'll send you one. You can give Alan my name. He can write me. I don't care how you do it. Uh, but if you want a copy, just let me know. And uh, that uh, also that book on the Olivet Discourse, it's uh, a little bit under that. The book on Revelation is uh, 512 pages. The uh, Olivet Discourse, 480. So they're about the same size. And uh, I don't sell books. I give them away. Uh, how can I do that? Well, I have, uh, there's some people out there that supply the funds to do it. I've never asked anyone for any funds. I never will. I ask the Lord. He supplies the funds so I can just give them away. So that's how I do it. It doesn't come out of my pocket. It's just people that are interested that do that. But at any rate, uh, I'm not one of these postcard-only people. I said, send me, a, call me on the phone, internet, whatever you want to do. Um, that is, uh, no postcards, please, not postcard only. That's the way it's sometimes done. Uh, that's not the way to do it. You trust the Lord to supply the needs, uh, and if he supplies them, you do it. If he doesn't supply them, he probably doesn't want you to do it anyway. Now, let's uh, get into one other thought on... Uh, the commentary on Revelation that I wrote. I believe there's another book out on Revelation out there that uh, I haven't looked at it, but if you see a difference in that one and mine, you know that I'm right and that one's wrong. <laughs> so, uh, so much, but I will take a look at it. You might want to take a look at it. I don't, I don't have any idea. We might be the same on things, but uh, at any rate. Uh, I want to start the message tonight or we're not tonight, we're morning. That's how mixed up I am. By the way, Alan, you messed up too. Yeah, right, right. He asked a while ago, did I leave any state out? Yeah, you did. I, I came here from Arizona. I, I kept waiting to hear Arizona, Arizona, and the speakers from Arizona. So uh, be that as it may. Um, where I want to start before we start reading in the book of Revelation, I did something in the message uh, yesterday evening that I have already stated that I do sometimes. 
I said that I was going a certain place. I built up to that in a certain place, got off on something else, never got back to it. And uh, that certain place was, some of you may have been uh, waiting for me to carry on with a thought, and I never did. And that's the way I'm going to start the message this hour. But, and it will be very appropriate to start it this way for the simple reason that John was moved forward in time and he was removed from man's day into the Lord's day. And I was talking about a scientist and uh, his knowledge of both science and scripture. And uh, he was very conversant with Einstein's theory of relativity. And I kind of built up to that point and I said I wanted to tell you something that I heard him uh, relate to people in a message years ago. And it fits right into the introduction here, so let me relate that. Now, as I said, time is a relative. It's not a constant. By that, time can change. God can change time. The constant, uh, for example, is here. This is unchangeable. But to give an illustration of a time, a change, uh, well, you find it in Scripture. God moves a man forward in time. He moved John forward in time in the book of Revelation. Not only forward in time, but he removed him out of man's day into the Lord's day. Now, you do understand that man's day lasts for 6,000 years on this earth. It has to do with man during the six days. The six days in Genesis 1 foreshadowing 6,000 years. That's man's day. And the Lord's day is in existence today, but not here on earth. The Lord's day will come on earth following man's day. It does not overlap any part of man's day. That's plain from scripture. It's not plain to the writers of the commentaries. Uh, almost without exception, you go to the commentaries and they'll try to overlap the Lord's day with the last seven years of man's day. That is, make the tribulation the Lord's day and then continue on through the messianic era. The Lord's day begins when Christ returns and overthrows Gentile world power and uh, continues right on through the messianic era, the end of man's day. Man's day has to run its course in the Lord's day. Now, Let's get back to the thought that I want to bring out to start this message. I'll get into the message in a little bit. It'll probably take a while for this message, so just uh, relax if you need to go get a drink of water or some other uh, something. We'll, uh, I won't think you're leaving unless I see you go that way, then we'll uh, know a little different. Now, this uh, scientist I was talking about, talking about Einstein's theory in accord with Scripture. It's, uh, his theory is really very scriptural in relation to time and how God can change time and time not being a constant. And uh, I'll use exactly the same illustration he used because it uh, brought the point home quite. Uh, and then I want to add to it something that I've been thinking about and you can think about. But first of all, to use uh, his words, he said, you, uh, you can uh, put a man in a spaceship, and uh, now this is all, we're not, we can't do this, of course, but he's saying, let's put a man in a spaceship and move him out for exactly 12 hours at just under the speed of light. The speed of light, uh, light runs at 186 and a, a couple of hundred, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, miles per second. 
In other words, you could run light around the earth in one second about to what, seven, uh, four, seven times in that neighborhood, a little more. That's how fast it travels. And to give you an idea, the, uh, our own uh, 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 solar system from one end to the other, not solar system, but uh, the, our, our galaxy, let's take the galaxy. It's 100,000 light years across the galaxy, and there are billions on top of billions of other galaxies. They can see some of them, they estimate uh, others. That's how, that's the immensity of the universe that God spoke and this all came into existence. But now, let's get back to moving a man out at just under the speed of light for about 12 hours and somehow being able to keep that speed constant and then bringing him back to earth another 12 hours. According to this theory, and it's very biblical, do you know how much time would elapse on earth for those left back on earth and would elapse for that man? Well, of course, we talked about 24 hours. According to this science, scientist with this theory, a thousand years would elapse back on earth, but only 24 hours for this man out there. He would come back and find those on earth had been here for, that is, he left the earth a thousand years before. Well, that, of course, is perfectly in line with what? Second Peter 3.8. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. Now, that's all theory, but it sounds, it really is very biblical. Now, let me add to that. Think a little bit about along this line, the opening verses of Genesis, the first 34 verses, and by the way, that'll be the subject this evening. That was a, somewhat the subject of Jim's uh, sermon this morning, and he's going to continue with that. So you're going to get a double dose of the opening verses of Genesis, which is good. Jim will, uh, some of our uh, thoughts will uh, be similar, some will overlap, some will add to the other. So one day he'll, comp say he'll uh, bring out things that'll complement some things I say. I'll bring out some things that perhaps will complement things that he says. And the first uh, 34 verses of Genesis are exceptionally important in that respect because that is the foundation for all Scripture. God has set that forth as the foundation, and then all of Scripture builds on that. Now, you have six 24-hour days foreshadowing six 1,000-year days. See, a day with the Lord as a 1,000 years. And then there's a seventh day, a seventh 24-hour day in Genesis that foreshadows a seventh 1,000-year day. God sets this forth as a framework, a skeletal framework, so to speak, upon which he builds his, the whole of his revelation. Now, one more thing on this, and I want to get to a point uh, having to do with uh, what I've uh, been talking about, about this scientist and so forth, and carry it one step further for your thinking. And uh, the thing I want to say before I get to that is, boy, I hope I don't forget where I was. If I do, somebody stop me and say, whoa, stop, wait, you were here. I want to hear this. Well, at any rate, Genesis begins the Old Testament. What begins the New Testament? 
Well, if you turn to uh, your, the way it's set up in your uh, Bibles, uh, Matthew begins the New Testament. But that's the wrong book to begin the New Testament. The Gospel of John should be placed over at the beginning of the New Testament because the Gospel of John starts out exactly like the book of Genesis with six and seven days and the eight signs that the Gospel of John are built around exactly parallel the types in Genesis and take you right on into the same place into the Messianic era. Now, I've got some of that in print. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, some of it, I believe I used some of that in the forward to, uh, or the introduction. Uh, sometimes I have both. Sometimes I'm not sure what I have in uh, the time of the end. I might have some of that in there. I've got some other places, but uh, you might uh, look at that sometime. Now, what I wanted to uh, bring out about... Uh, carrying this uh, ideology one step further. A day with the Lord as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day, God being able to change time um, in accord with, uh, well, how we think of time. And I uh, mentioned that one, uh, one way you can know for sure that the things in the book of Revelation will come to pass is that they've already come to pass, but yet they're future. See, John saw all of these things come to pass. He was moved into the Lord's day. He was moved ahead in the Lord's day. He saw it happen. Well, we're not there yet. See how time works? It's relative. God can change things. God can move a man ahead in, ahead in time, back in time. But think along these lines, and then we're going to read in uh, Revelation. All right, uh, I said, think along these lines. Let's start with that uh, same sentence again. What about people who have uh, passed on? Let's take someone who has, uh, well, let's take an event. Let's take the uh, uh, crucifixion of Christ by the Jews 2,000 years ago. And all the Christians who have uh, passed on during uh, this last 2,000 years. Did that take place 2,000 years ago within God's reckoning of time, looking at Genesis chapter 1 and into chapter 2? Or within the way things are moving within the heavens where these Christians have gone, let's say a Christian dying at the first part of the first century, will he have uh, had to wait 2,000 years or within time moving as uh, that he's in? Would it be just uh, comparable to two days? Do you see what I'm saying? You think about that a little bit. That may very well be the case. I'm just throwing out something for you to maybe uh, chew on a little bit and think about. I don't know. I can't prove that one way or another, but that may very well be the case. These early Christians uh, having to wait 2,000 years, they may just be waiting what we uh, know, uh, waiting uh, a time that we uh, would think of or know as a 48-hour period with them. That's the way God started out his word, foreshadowing a 24-hour period, foreshadowing a 1,000-year period, that type of thing. Now, with all of that in mind, a lot is theory, a lot is something you can think about. There are things that cannot be proved one way or the other, but in one sense of the word, they're very biblical or very biblical thoughts. 
I'm in the book of Revelation. I was trying to think what book I was going to. All right, Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> now, the book of Revelation, of course, is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. An opening up, an unveiling, uh, revealing of the one about whom this whole, this whole, uh, of whom this whole book is about. Now, in beginning, and before I read, let me just talk to you a little bit more. In beginning uh, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's this Word right here. The Word was God. We can't understand a statement like that in one respect. Now, this Word became flesh. This Word is all about the Son. And this Word, which... Now, the word was, the word was God, that's a verb of being, and it has a, there's no beginning or ending point to this verb. It, you could uh, almost translate it, and the word always has been, always will be God. And this word that always has been, always will be God, became, at a point in time, became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. Now... Within the living, this is the living word, written word, and the living word became flesh. So you have the word in two forms, and the word always has been, always will be God. You really can't draw a separation at any point. Do you realize what you're holding in your hands? Now, This word that always has been, always will be God, becoming flesh, and within this person becoming flesh dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And this book, the book of Revelation, is an unveiling of this individual. Now, when did this individual become flesh? Before any part of the New Testament was written. The Old Testament, in one sense, I could say the Old Testament, the written word became, which is God, became flesh in the person of the Son. How complete was the Son when the word became flesh? If you say that there's something in the New Testament that does not have its origin or cannot be found in the Old Testament, you would have to admit or say that the word at that point was incomplete. The New Testament completes that which has already become or already become flesh. So that alone would tell you that there's nothing in the New Testament that does not have its roots somewhere in the Old Testament. I talked a little bit about a mystery out at Faith Baptist, and a mystery is simply taking something in the Old Testament and further opening it up in the New. There are numerous mysteries. One is the mystery of God. You run across that in uh, Revelation 10. The mystery of God at that point in the book of Revelation is finished because all of the uh, all seven seals of uh, the seven seal scroll have been broken and uh, trumpets have all been blown in the seventh seal. The vials which correspond also to the seven trumpets, they've all been poured out. 
But you say, wait a minute, the vials are not poured out to get further on in the book of Revelation. I know that, but you didn't think I knew that. Here I have them all poured out in Revelation 10. They're over in, what, Revelation 16, where they're poured out. Well, bear in mind something about this book that I told you. We're going to read in just a minute. Well, I'll get there. Now, bear in mind something about this book that I told you. This book goes over a sequence. Then it'll carry you over that same sequence again and again and again. Just to give one illustration, that's the way the book starts out. It takes you through the complete sequence that is the, the book of Genesis. It takes you through the complete sequence in 34 verses. Then the 35th verse, uh, second chapter, verse 4, starts commentary. And that's something we're going to start on this evening. We're going to go over a lot of, uh, a lot of this. This evening, uh, I'll cover... Uh, the uh, overall framework. Then we're going to move beyond that and uh, start covering commentary, uh, filling in the gaps. And before I leave here uh, and uh, go back to Arizona, I'm hoping that uh, I'll get the point across on how, uh, or some points across on how to study this book. I'll tell you one way to study it. Try reading it. I mean, uh, that's a forgotten art today. Just read it. Uh, while I'm on that subject, again, I'm going to get to the, to the lesson in a little bit. But Charles Woodbridge came to uh, Temple, Tennessee Temple, when I was a student there. That's been 50 years ago. You can tell I'm kind of holding on to the pulpit a little bit. That's, it's been a while. It's been a, been a long road. But... Uh, I'm not as feeble as you might think. I'm still, um, see, look at there, free. But uh, uh, Charles Woodbridge, uh, he came in and delivered a series of uh, messages. And uh, his first message, he said, now, on my last message, I'm going to tell you the best way to study the Bible that I've ever run across. Well, Fred Brown was an evangelist there at the time. Many of you recognize names, I'm sure. Fred Brown was a Chattanooga evangelist in past years. He's since gone to be with the Lord. But uh, uh, Fred Brown, a very fundamental type evangelist, uh, people really liked, liked him because he hadn't written a book. He went into a church uh, one time, and the pastor said, well, uh, I suppose that you want a book table for your books. He said, what books? I don't have any books. I've just come here to preach the word. Who are you? I'm just a voice. That was Fred Brown, you see. And people loved him because of his uh, mannerism, his attitude. Uh, he just, all he wanted to do is just go into a, a church and preach the word from a fundamental standpoint. But I call attention to Fred Brown because Charles Woodbridge had uh, t uh, told him uh, this, how to go about uh, studying the Bible, the best method he'd ever run across in his life. And Fred Brown got up before the student body and said, you've got to hear this. I've never heard anything like it. It's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. It's how to study the Bible. And uh, he had everybody on the edge of their seats for days. I mean, through the conference, three or four day conference, something like that. And you know what Charles Woodbridge got up and said? Basically what I said a while ago. He, he got up and he said this, and it is the best method you could ever find. 
He said, what you want to do is take about four chapters out of a section of the Bible and read them. One day, two days, read them for 30 days straight. And he said, by the time you get down around 25 to 30 days, he said, you'll almost have it memorized. He said, you'll know what's next. He said, when you get through there, take four more chapters. Just keep going. Just keep reading this book. Read it over and over and over. He said, that's the best uh, a way to study the Bible that I'm aware of. And it is. It's, I mean, just read the book. So let's, uh, let's read the book. Now, starting out in uh, verse 9. I, John, who, I'm in the first chapter, uh, verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, let me make a couple of comments about that before we read another verse. Uh, Usually in the commentaries, you'll find that John is supposedly exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Well, there's no, there's no biblical reason to say that. He was in the Isle of Patmos. The Lord placed him there to receive the word of God. The Lord placed him there. It's an isolated place, or it was in those days. I don't know what's over there today. And I believe there was a penal colony there in those days. But John was in this isle to receive the word of the Lord. And he was removed from this isle, taken into the Lord's day to be shown what God wanted to show him. Now, verse 10, I was in the spirit or I became in the spirit, just like the word became flesh. Same word used there. I became in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, so many make this on Sunday. John was worshiping on Sunday. In fact, I believe there are Bible translations that will read that way. I was worshiping on, on the Lord's day. I was worshiping on Sunday. That's not what's in view at all. The uh, first day of the week was not called the Lord's day at this time. If, there's ever, if there is a reference to the first day of the week as the Lord's day, this is the only one. But this book is not about John being taken somewhere and worshiping on Sunday. This book is about John being removed from man's day into the Lord's day and being shown what took place in past time that God moved time around and so governed circumstances and events that John could see these things taking place. But yet, they haven't taken place. They're out in the future. And they occur, again, not in man's day, but in the Lord's day. John became in the spirit in the Lord's day. And he said, what, he heard a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, first and last letters in your uh, Greek alphabet. First and last, and what thou seest, write in a book, send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the, the paps, that is, the breast, with a golden girdle. 
His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And when he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of Hades and of death. Now he's told to write the things uh, which he's about to be shown and uh, send it to the seven churches in Asia. So what do we have here? We have John removed into the Lord's day exactly like the church yet future will be removed into the Lord's day. Now before I continue here, turn over to chapter 4. Let's see something very similar. In chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter, or literally after these things. Immediately I was in the heaven. Behold, a throne was set in heaven. One sat on the throne. There was a rainbow around the throne. Now, Remember what I told you about Scripture going over one sequence and biking up to the same point and going over the sequence again, but providing additional revelation. Here's a good example of that. John removed in chapter 1, verse 10, I became in the Spirit on the Lord's day, heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Look at verse 1 in chapter 4. I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. First voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither. What we have here is a picture of the removal of the church at the end of the present dispensation. If you question that, just stay with me, because I can show you something else that will leave you with problems. And that is... When you get on down to uh, verses 13, 14, 15, 16 and there, you find all seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in the Lord's presence in heaven when he appears not as a priest but as a judge. You see, during the present dispensation, he's occupying the office of high priest on behalf of Christians. And he's not exercising this office after the order of Melchizedek. Let me repeat that. Christ is not exercising a priestly ministry after the order of Melchizedek. We'll get to that in another message. How can he exercise an office as high priest if he is of the line of the tribe of Judah? not of the tribe of Levi. Only the Levites can exercise an office of priest. Now this is, he's exercising, let me preface, I should have prefaced that statement uh, with another statement. He's really exercising an office today in line with the order of Aaron. I don't necessarily want to say after the order of Aaron, but his priestly ministry is patterned after this order. Aaron is the one who ministered in the sanctuary with blood on uh, 
behalf of the people. Christ is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood on the mercy seat on behalf of you and me. That's what first uh, uh, John 1, 9 and continuing, well, really backing up behind that is what the opening verses of First John have to do with. Now, how can he exercise a ministry after this order not being of the tribe of Levi? How can a one from the tribe, in the Old Testament economy, an individual from a tribe of Judah couldn't do this? Well, there's your secret to it. Notice I said Old Testament economy. We are not under the Old Testament economy. That was, that had to do with the old creation in Jacob. What are you? You're a new creation in Christ, an entirely new creation. Now, true, you're the seed of Abraham. You have to move back into that point, but you're the seed of Abraham through being in Christ because there are no spiritual blessings apart from coming through Abraham and his seed. And his seed, not only the nation of Israel, but his seed, Christ. And in, because you are in Christ, then you're of Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, don't ever get the idea that the church has replaced Israel. God's plans and purposes for Israel remain intact. Now, Israel has forfeited the right as a nation to rule from the heavenly sphere of the kingdom. God called into existence an entirely new creation. That's you, that's me, to occupy these positions in the heavens. But the nation of Israel, the flesh, blood, and bone, seed of Abraham, down through Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, God will one day fulfill his promises relative to this nation and bring this nation back into the position for which he originally called the nation to occupy, and that is dwell in a particular land in the Middle East, be in there alone, and he will not only, they will not only rule the nations from the earthly sphere of the kingdom, but God will bless the nations through them. Now, something I alluded to, and let me say it again. Notice how you have benefited through God's blessings through Israel even today. Medicine, uh, any number of things. It's mainly the Jew which has discovered, God has allowed them to discover so many things today. A nation which is far less than 1% of the total population of the earth is a nation that has done this. It's a nation in the Middle East that, I should, I, let me just say, causing all the problem. That's probably not a good statement to make relative to Israel. But it's because of this tiny nation in the Middle East that the whole powder keg is about to blow up in that part of the, of the world. Why? Because of who Israel is. It's an interesting thing. It's, uh, it's one of these uh, diametrically opposed ideas that you come across here and there. There's a name for that, too. It slips me right now, but uh, let's, uh, let, me, let me just explain what I'm saying, and then you'll understand what, uh, where we're going with this. That is, uh, take World War II. The nation of Israel called into existence to bless the nations. What did uh, the Third Reich try to do? They tried to destroy the one nation which God had called into existence 
to bless the very nation that was trying to destroy them. Take Iran today with Ahmadinejad. What's he trying to do? He's trying to wipe Israel off of the earth. He's following along the lines of Nasser of Egypt in past years. And Nasser said our basic aim in this war is to drive Israel into the Mediterranean Sea. Down through the years, you've had men's attitudes at directing nations which have been, uh, which they're, they're moved toward Israel. Now, there's another reason for that out of Daniel 10, and that is God, uh, not to well, God does, rules over all. I was about to say Satan rules the earth at the present time, a rebel ruler, and he rules through the Gentile nations. Rulers on the earth ruling under Satan and the Gentile nations influencing them. Uh, angels under uh, Satan ruling through these uh, individuals on earth. And what would you think that they might uh, in, try to influence these rulers uh, relative to? I mean, it's easy to see. The nation of Israel. That nation has to be wiped out to allow Satan to continue. If Satan can wipe that nation out, he can continue occupying the position he presently occupies. But he that sitteth in the heavens is going to laugh. That's in Psalm 2. That's in the final roundup when these nations come against the nation of Israel after the tribulation, after the Lord has returned, regathered his people in a saved condition. And then the final thrust, he that sitteth in the heavens is going to laugh in contempt at the whole thing. And yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now, what does all that have to do with the current lesson, the rapture? Well, not really much. I just thought you might like to hear it, and I wanted to say it. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's get on with the lesson. <clears throat> now, what we have is Christ as judge. In fact, you're going to hear a lot of that. Uh, you can't talk too much about what's uh, in store for the nation of Israel out ahead. That's what the, whole, that's what the Bible's all about. Uh, there's... Um, particular denomination, um, uh, I'm not sure it's Christian, it's very prevalent in this area. They home in on the New Testament. Now you know who I'm talking about. But uh, I was reading, uh, yeah, I read some things like that every once in a while out on the internet, what one of their ministers had to say. And he couldn't understand a person like me that talks about a future for the nation of Israel. God's through with Israel uh, is the attitude. And that's so prevalent out there. And that's probably why I spend so much time talking about uh, Israel. And there's another reason I was heavily influenced by a past minister in this area, uh, that this conference is somewhat, uh, it's not dedicated to, but it's a conference that came into existence because of his ministry in the area. And uh, so many of you are here right now listening to me rant and rave because of his ministry here. You were reached either through him directly or by someone who was reached by him. And I'm standing here talking to you because of his past ministry here. It's kind of strange. I, went, I came here to go to, uh, to learn the Bible at a school that, uh, and I went out to uh, this man's church out north of Red Bank to learn the Bible. And that's exactly where it should be learned, 
under a local pastor, a pastor of a church. That's the biblical model, and it's a biblical model which is almost never followed today. Pastors are busy running some type of organization which doesn't even resemble a church. Well, enough of that. Back to our lesson. Now, when John was removed into the Lord's day, he saw this individual dressed a certain way. Now, he was girt about the breast with a golden girdle. A priest would wear the girdle about the waist so he could tuck the garments of a, he would wear a long flowing robe, tuck them in the girdle, and carry on his priestly duties. It was a judge who wore the girdle about the breast. Turn over, just hold your place there, turn over and look at chapter 15, the book of Revelation, to uh, back that statement up. In uh, 15, I want to go down around verse, uh, I want to verse 6. The seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, these are the vials in uh, chapter 16, clothed in purple and white linen and having their breasts girt about with golden girdles. It has to do with judgment. And one of the four, four living creatures uh, gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God. And chapter 16 shows they're being poured out. And to help you with the vials, uh, let me say this. Go back, uh, take the vials in chapter 16, compare each one with each of the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. Leading into uh, 10, you'll find that they are really uh, two different uh, descriptions of the same thing. Now, back to chapter 1. John removed into the Lord's day, he sees this individual Christ as judge. Now, Christ is not judging today. In fact, uh, uh, let me say this about his description before I continue. Uh, his feet likened to uh, brass. I mean, brass has to do with judgment. Uh, the whole description of him here has to do with judgment. Christ as a judge, yet future. He's not judging today. He's high priest today. But the day is coming when he will be our judge. And the picture of him as judge, you find a complete church, all seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 in his presence. Now, if you don't like the idea of John representing the church in uh, verses 10, 11, being removed from the earth from man's day into the Lord's day, chew on the idea that here's a complete church in Christ's presence with his being seen as judge. You see, Christ is not going to be seen as judge until after the dispensation has run its course. He will exercise the office of high priest until the dispensation ends. And then the church is going to be removed, stand in his presence as judge. And that's exactly the picture here. Now, this continues through chapters 2 and 3, but chapter 4 is a little bit different, which we'll get to in just a minute. Chapters 2 and 3, you have a dual picture. You have a history of the church through the dispensation. It starts out, the church in Ephesus, which leaves its first love. 
and leaving its first love, it eventually ends up as seen in the church in Laodicea, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I listened to a man preach on the Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia, the church in Laodicea. He was wanting to tell the people that he was preaching to, well, you're not a Laodicean church because there wasn't anybody in Laodicea that was even saved. You're a Philadelphian church. Well, think about that a minute. Wasn't anyone in Laodicea that was even saved. There wasn't anyone in the church in Laodicea that wasn't saved. Now, now understand something about the three divisions of the human race. There are Jews. They're not saved. There are Gentiles. They're not saved either. And there are Christians. They're all saved. There's no such thing as a, a born-again Christian. There's a Christian, and all Christians have been born again. That's, a, that's a, just a double statement, a born-again Christian. What is that? Let's just go with Christian. I know that you have to explain things sometimes. You've got people say they're Christian. Well, have you been born again? Well, I, I understand that. But there are three divisions to the human race, Jew, Gentile, and Christian. There's no such thing as a fourth division between a Christian and a, a one of the others. If you're these, the Bible doesn't recognize such a thing as an unsaved individual being a member of a church. It doesn't work that way. The way Scripture has it set forth is a saved person. Well, the church, a church is made up of saved individuals. It's not made up of saved and unsaved with evangelists going into the churches trying to get the unsaved that are members of that church saved. Well, the way the churches are today, I know that with, on the rolls of churches, we have unsaved people. Now, that's true, but that's, they're, they're, not, they're not part of the church. Only those that are saved are part of the church, the way Scripture has things set up. So what we have in Revelation 2 and 3, we, we're, we're dealing with the saved. We're not dealing with unsaved. There's nothing, nothing in these two chapters that have to do with salvation by grace through faith. And that includes inviting Jesus into your heart in chapter 3. That's a, I, I don't know where they ever came up with that. Jesus doesn't want to come into your heart. Uh, your heart's all corrupt, uh, so forth. And but then again, I realize that heart is used relative to the to the man himself. Now that might be a little bit different idea there. But salvation. Where does it say in Scripture that you're saved by inviting Jesus into your heart? Or where does He even save to invite Jesus into the individual? Let me show you something about uh, that section of Scripture. Go back, uh, go over to 320. That's the verse that I'm somewhat referring to. Now, this is to the church in Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. It's not into him. Let's read that like it's supposed to be read. He opens, if any man in that corrupt church, it's... Uh, uh, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked will open the door. He's inside of that messed up church. If any of you will open the door and let me in, I will come inside that church. I will come to that individual and will sup with him and he with me. 
It's not I will come into him. I will come inside. He's opened the door. I'll come inside, and he and I will have fellowship together. The call goes out, an overcomer's promise to those in, even in the corrupt church in Laodicea. And notice what they're promised, verse 21. To him that overcometh, open the door, lets me in. To him that overcometh, will I grant with the, will I grant to sit with me in my throne. This is Christ's throne during the coming 1,000-year messianic era. So you have all, you have seven overcomers' promises. All of these seven epistles are structured exactly alike. Starts out unto the angel of. There's an angel over each church. So this is not the pastor. There's no such thing in the New Testament anyway as a pastor, uh, one church having a single pastor. Uh, churches in the New Testament had a multiplicity of pastors. So you wouldn't have this singled out as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. No, it's an angel watching over that church. And, of course, angels acting under fixed laws. It's God watching over that church. You have an angel watching over you, acting under fixed laws. It's God watching over you. So you have that dual outlook relative to Christians and the church in Scripture. But it starts out this way. I know thy works. There's a reference to works. Does salvation have to do with works? I might surprise you with this response. Yeah, it does. The salvation you presently have has to do with works. There's no such thing as a salvation apart from works. Whether it's a salvation you presently possess or salvation of the soul, present, and future. Let me show you the difference. The salvation you presently possess... Another did the work on your behalf because you're dead in you were dead in sins and trespasses. You couldn't even move about. You're just like the man six feet under. Try to get a corpse to move in a cemetery sometime. That's how much you could move spiritually to effect your salvation. Another did all the work on your behalf, but God required this work of another who died in your place. All you have to do is believe on him. It's that simple. But now, we'll see this more tonight. But once the earth began to uh, be restored on the, the, uh, it's the third day, you have the dry land appearing. I'll tell you how that, I'll show you how that dry land began to appear. But then it's, then the earth began uh, to be able to bring forth. And once you have passed from death into life, you're able to begin to bring forth. But let's get back to the lesson here. All right. We have, I know thy works. We're talking to save people. And then certain things are stated about their works, and then an overcomer's promise is given. All seven of these epistles are structured exactly the same. And there's a dual run on what is taught in Revelation 2 and 3, going through these seven churches. The foundation is set in the first chapter. It's John removed. It's picturing the church being removed into the Lord's day and appearing before Christ in judgment. And chapters 2 and 3 continue that thought. What will be the basis for judgment uh, before this judge, before the judgment seat of Christ? It will be works. And it will be with a view to showing or whether you have overcome or you have been overcome. Now, one quick 
statement about works. It's not just any works. It's not works done in the energy of the flesh. Those are worthless. Those are wood, hay, and stubble. It's works done through an individual faithfully waiting on the Lord and letting the Lord do a work through him. Don't get in a hurry. If, if nothing seems to be happening, continue faithfully waiting on the Lord. And let the Lord do a work through you. Those are the only type of works that will come out as gold, silver, and precious stones at the judgment seat. And that, along with the history of the church, a dual look in chapters 2 and 3, it's what they're all about. What's chapter 4 about? Now, there's one thing I want to emphasize here before I get into chapter 4 and comment on it briefly. What I'm going to do beyond this is just take a few minutes, probably 15, I don't know, and give you a running look at uh, the book of Revelation. But one thing I want to emphasize at this point that is that all seven churches are seen in Christ's presence in chapter 1. It's all seven churches being dealt with with its respect in chapters 2 and 3. Seven is a complete number. It has to do with the completeness of that which is in view. Each complete number has a particular uh, emphasis in that respect. Three is the number of divine perfection. Uh, seven, uh, completeness of that which is in view. It's also God's number. He's in view. Ten, uh, numerical perfection. Completeness, 12, a governmental perfection. So there's some aspect uh, in that respect, uh, some emphasis on the number. But here it's completeness with a view to that uh, scene, uh, the seven churches. Now here's the thing. It's not only the church in Ephesus or the church in Philadelphia. It's also the church in Laodicea. They're all there. The complete church is seen in Christ's presence. Again, there is no such thing as a selective rapture of Christians. Again, and we're going to see this, there is no such thing as any Christian going through any part of the tribulation. All Christians are removed prior to the tribulation and all Christians will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and the division occurs there, at the judgment seat, not here via a supposed selective resurrection and rapture. Is there, are there scriptures for a selective resurrection and rapture? Well, they find a lot of scriptures. So many of them have nothing to do with the rapture. One such place would be the Olivet Discourse accounts in uh, Matthew and Luke. Have nothing to do with the rapture. Let me take an example of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> you have uh, the first of four parables in uh, dealing with the Christian section of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. You have two in the field, one taken, another left. Well, that sounds like a selective rapture to me. Well, let's go to the Greek text and straighten that out a little bit. What you have is one received alongside and one turned away. This is a scene following the rapture. The rapture itself is not seen. And maybe I'd better say something about that as well. There is very little really in scripture about the rapture itself per se. A lot of verses have been tried, they've tried to take them and apply them to the rapture that have nothing to do with the rapture. 
to give you a light moment right now, let me uh, uh, call attention to something in one of the uh, leading common commentaries in, uh, in use today. I won't tell you which one it is, but uh, uh, Jim, during the last message, brought out Philippians 3.11. The commentator, looking at this particular verse, he can't figure it out, an out-resurrection. He says, well, possibly Paul had in mind the rapture. What in the world? Paul had in mind the rapture? They take verses like this and try to apply them to the rapture out of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew or Luke, things of that nature. They take Revelation 3.10, has nothing to do with the rapture. That's like trying to find the salvation uh, by grace message through Revelation 2 and 3. Here's another interesting thing you might uh, like to think about. All seminaries offer courses in church history. Do you know not a, not a one of them is taught correctly? There's two places in uh, the New Testament that provide a history of the church. One is in Matthew 13, the first four parables. The other is in Revelation 2 and 3. Do you know what the emphasis in both places uh, has to do with in the two occurrences uh, in the New Testament where you have a history of the church? It has to do with the word of the kingdom starting out the entire church, the church as a whole, at the very first began to had an understanding of this message. Then things gradually began to happen. Apostates came in, started teaching different, and it ends up like it's seen in the church in Laodicea. That's church history in the way the New Testament teaches, church history. Do you know of a seminary that teaches it that way? I don't. They teach the evolution of the church as man has seen it throughout uh, 2,000 years. Well, that's good and well, but that's not the way Scripture lays it out. Scripture lays out things, some things are very simple, and man has just confused the issue. What am I, down on seminaries? No, I'm just not. I'm not down on seminaries. Uh, I went to a seminary. I'm always, uh, now this, this is a Wilson thought. He, he said, I'll, I'll just tell it like from myself. He stated it one time. Uh, he said, I'm always glad I went to seminary. He said, if I hadn't gone, I would go through life always wondering if I had missed anything. And uh, I, I was able to go through seminary and find out I wouldn't have missed a thing. You see? <laughs> Uh, it's like a theology course I took one time. I had to take a systematic theology course. And if you're familiar with systematic theologies, uh, books, it was by uh, Burkhoff. Burkhoff uh, is a Reformed theologian, amillennial, uh, so forth. Well, I had to take the course. I had to memorize large sections of this book to pass the course. Uh, worthless. But I'm always glad I took that course. For the same reason, because I'd go through life wondering if uh, I missed anything by not. Now I know I wouldn't have missed a thing, you see, so that's, uh, that's nice. And uh, a lot of times I'll say something to somebody for that same reason. Uh, uh, and I, I get in trouble sometimes, I mean big trouble. I'm, I'm a little bit, I don't, li I don't, like, to, I don't like to straddle a fence. Uh, I don't, if I were sitting out in the middle of a lake and the lake was calm, I'd probably take a paddle and beat the water to rock it a little bit. And that's, uh, now, where I get in trouble is saying weird things to ladies. That's, uh, that's my big downfall. I 
Uh, I'm old enough to know better, but I do it anyway. So uh, let, let's let it, let's drop it there. Uh, I think we better. I might say something that I would uh, regret. Okay. <clears throat> now in chapter uh, four, we have the church, another picture of the church being removed. But now John sees something different. He sees that uh, God is thrown. Uh, he sees a rainbow uh, around, about the throne and uh, he sees 24 elders. Oh, that other book out there on Revelation, if it doesn't have this right, forget it. Uh, oh, this, uh, this person's going to shoot me later, but uh, that's all right. Uh, so many make these 24 elders uh, either the, uh, the church or the church in Israel. That has nothing to do with either one. The word that's used translated elder is presbyterus. Uh, we get our... Uh, word, uh, well, English word, uh, the, uh, uh, a leader in the church. It's, it's used several times relative to older people in the New Testament church, and it's used that way in the New Testament. But it has to do with an older person, an elder. And if this is used relative to Christians, it's saying that these are all older Christians, not, not all Christians, so to speak, older. But here's a, here's a problem. We're dealing with the government of the earth through the book of Revelation. And we're dealing with this government about to change hands. And right after this, in chapter 5, we're going to get into the uh, lamb. Uh, you, have a, you have lion used once, lamb used many times. But uh, the lamb of God taking uh, the lion of Judah appears, but he has... Uh, he is uh, redeeming the earth. Then he appears as the lamb. He takes the scroll from the right hand of his father, which contains the redemptive terms of the earth. And the earth is to be redeemed in order that the son and his, the one who will be his wife in that coming day, will, can reign over the earth. Or Israel, here on the earth, can reign upon the earth. But... This redemptive act has to occur first, which carries you all the way through from chapter 6 through uh, into 19, well, through 19. And this, uh, we, we have the church judged. Now, we start at the same point in chapter 4. John removed, but now he doesn't see the one that uh, uh, will judge. He doesn't see the church. He sees 24 older individuals and it has to do with elders older individuals uh it has to do with the government of the earth that's what this book is about it's about the transfer it's about the unveiling of the sun with a view to his reigning over the earth the earth being redeemed the redemption of the uh, possession now in satan's uh control his command and uh, this really has two parts. It has to do with individuals on the earth and the earth itself. I'll give uh, the father has told his son that he would give him the Gentiles for his inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. But a redemption has to occur. And in this case, it's exactly the same as any redemptive act. It's through judgment. See, God judged sin in the person of his son. 
Now he's going to carry out the redemption of this possession in the antitype of Boaz redeeming the inheritance and taking Ruth as his wife at the same time. And in the process of redeeming this inheritance, the son will take the ones who have been shown worthy, who have been shown to have overcome in chapters 1, 2, and 3, then he will take, that is, through this redemptive process, will take this one, the one taken out of the body, comprised of Christians, as his wife. Did you know that the son has to have a wife to reign? The father has to have a wife during the Messianic era? The father is divorced from Israel today. He will have to remarry Israel. That's seen in John 2. But that, that can only occur after Israel is brought to a place of repentance, after Israel receives their Messiah. Christ uh, can't reign today. He doesn't have a wife. This is all set forth in the opening chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve had to occupy the throne together. I'll deal with that in a later lesson, uh, probably tomorrow. So we'll drop that at that point, just something for you to be thinking about and maybe bring you back uh, tomorrow. Um, we're not having lunch tomorrow, are we? Yeah, lunch, okay. You've got something else to come back, having lunch today and tomorrow. Now, the 24 elders in chapter 4. John the, here is pictured as being removed and... Now, immediately, he's taken to a point where the judgment of the church is passed. You've got 24 elders who cast their crowns before God's throne. If this is a picture of the church casting crowns before the throne, why in the world would they be doing this? Christians will wear crowns during the coming age. Now, Christians at this point in the book of Revelation would not have crowns to cast before the throne anyway. If they did, they would be crowned before Christ is crowned. Christ will not be crowned until after he returns back to the earth and overthrows the Gentile world power under Satan. Then he will take Satan's crown. That's the crown he's going to wear. Satan is a ruler over this world during the present time. Christ is a coming ruler. The crown will change hands. A scepter will change hands. Do you know what crowns that Christians who uh, occupy positions with Christ will wear? It's very simple. They will wear crowns worn by angels originally placed in positions under Satan before Satan fell, before he sought to exalt his throne. He was placed over this earth, a great contingent of angels placed under him. But do you remember what happened when uh, he sought to exalt his throne? Two-thirds of the angels refused to go along with him. One-third went along with him. How do I know that? In chapter, uh, uh, it's chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. The great dragon, his tail drags a third of the stars from heaven. Satan, the great dragon, when he's cast out of the heavens onto the earth near the middle of the tribulation, a third of the original contingent of angels ruling with him, still ruling with him, are taken down to the earth with him. That left two-thirds that didn't. 
What do you have here? You have 24 elders. You have two sets of 12. See, it should be a third set. Three is a number of divine perfection. 12 is a number of governmental perfection. You have three sets having to do with governmental perfection and divine perfection three within the government. That's the way the government of the earth would have been originally established. Well, you have two sets here. The other set still was Satan. These could only have to do with the angels. Originally ruling was Satan. That is not 24 angels, but a representative group, much like we have congressmen, things of that nature. A representative group representing the two-thirds of the whole contingent of angels. Now, why do they cast their crowns before God's throne? Because others have been shown worthy, qualified to occupy these positions which they once held, but under Christ, not under Satan. Their crowns are cast before God's throne. Did you know it's God himself who's going to place you in the position and really give you the crown in that respect should you, uh, if you qualify for one of the crowns. It's a son who returns in chapter 19 with many crowns upon his head. And the Greek word used there is diadema. The Greek word used here is Stephanos. There's two words used for crown in the book of Revelation. Stephanos has to do with a non-ruling capacity. That is, it could be used for winning a race, something of that nature. A diadema, we call it a diadem in a, an English word. It has to do with a monarch's crown, someone who's actually occupying the throne. Now, these crowns worn by the 24 elders could not be called diadems. Therefore, the other Greek word is used. But when the sun, the crowns upon the sun's head, when he returns, are apparently these crowns here. But then that day, they'll be seen as diadems in Revelation 19. That's the other Greek word that's used monarch's crowns and these crowns will be worn by Christians they relinquish them because of that God has not committed the inhabited world to come to angels you know where that verse is found I'm somewhat loosely stating it that's Hebrews 2 5 the inhabited world to come has not been subject committed to angelic rule as the present world no, it'll be placed under the rule of man. That's the reason man was created in the beginning and the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God's not going to change his mind concerning the reason he called man into existence. By the way, that's what the word repentance means. It just means a change of mind. If you have to uh, change your mind to be saved, true, you have to repent. But not to be saved, you have to change your mind so you can believe. It's not changing your mind that saves you. It's allowing you to believe that saves you. Repentance is never part of salvation in that respect, but it might be necessary to change your mind to bring you to a point where you can believe. A nation of Israel, a Jew today, would have to do that. He can change his mind all he wants to. It's never going to save him. But what will save him, anyone else, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. It's that simple. You know, God's made it so simple. Man's muddied the waters, and, and uh, you go on from there. But Christians will wear the crowns presently worn by these angels. They relinquish them because these Christians have been shown worthy to wear them. 
relinquish them to God who will place them in these positions. And uh, the son, it's not stated in so many words, but what other crowns would he have returning with many diadems upon his head? Now, these are not the crowns he's going to wear. He's going to wear the crown Satan presently wears, and he will return to overthrow Gentile world power headed up under Satan, overthrow Satan, his angels, and then these crowns will not be relinquished. They'll be taken by force. And Christians will wear not only the crowns presently worn by the 24 elders, but by the crown, wear the crowns presently worn by angels ruling under Satan. All right. Well, I got that right. I was trying to think how I structured that. That's good enough. Crowns worn by those presently ruling under Satan. Then Christ will wear the crown Satan presently wears. And you can see the major problem trying to say that these are Christians casting crowns before the throne. There's so many problems with that. That doesn't even fit the book. There's nothing about that that, uh, that fits. But the scenario I've presented before you, uh, study it out. And I always tell people this. Jim alluded to this. If you, uh, if, you differ, if you differ with me and you have scripture to back up the way you differ, I don't have a thing to say to you. But if you don't have any scripture to back up to your differences, oh, well, my pastor believes that. It must be right. He studied more than I have. Don't bother. I'm not interested. I want to know what this book has to say. That's the thing that interests me. All right, I've covered the subject enough so you can see where the book is going and what's about to happen and uh, where we are and, uh, well, all things along that line. So I think I'll close at this point. We're getting, yeah, we're getting pretty late, 35 after 12. So let's have a word of prayer and uh, we'll get something to eat, have a little fellowship. Maybe I ought to say something about fellowship. One minute. <clears throat> the epistle of John has to do with fellowship. John wrote these things in order that Christians might have fellowship. Now watch this, with him. But his fellowship, and he's quick to tell you, my fellowship's with the Father, with his Son. I want you to know these things so you can have fellowship with the Father, with the Son. Wilson made a statement one time, said to me, fellowship is in the Word. It has to be. You've got to know the Word or you can't have fellowship. Because fellowship is agreeing with the Father, with His Son, relative to the Word. Fellowship, the Word means like-minded. It's being like-minded with the Father relative to His Word. Now, true, two Christians can have fellowship on a horizontal plane, so to speak, but only if both are in tune with the Father and with his Son in a vertical plane, so to speak, and that's fellowship. And if we have fellowship, that's the type we need to have. That's the only type of biblical fellowship out there. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful you've allowed us to look into your word, to discuss these things, throw out these thoughts. Just pray that uh, things amiss might be dismissed, but uh, things from your word in accord with your word, that they might be caused to think on these things to see if they be so. It's in Christ's name. Amen.